When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest with me is writer, editor, publisher, James Brown. Welcome to the show. Hi, Stuart. Thanks for having me. We've come together because you've got a book out, your memoir, Animal House, which kind of gives us your, your life story, I suppose, in terms of journalism and publishing. That's right, yeah. It's subtitled um, Music, Magazines and Mayhem. That's what it is. Indeed, it was. I'm, I, and, and and just for the for the listener, I'm, I'm up to the intermission, which is a fitting point, uh, as I think we're, we just we've just moving into the loaded period. I think is. Uh, yeah, I think um, I had so many great times when I was writing on the uh, when I was a music writer on Sounds and then NME, and then went off and managed a band for a bit, and then I started Loaded, uh, and so they're all heavily covered in the book. I actually took an awful lot of the music stories out. I held them back because there were just too many, too many dressing rooms, too many interviews, too many places to include them all and be able to get the other things that the publishers wanted me to write about, which was some of the more personal things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was going to say that was that's the big learning point for me. You know, obviously knowing you as a byline and knowing you as the person yeah. that gave us Loaded magazine. But then to read about your own background and uh, and family life and stuff, that was I wasn't expecting that. No, well, I think a lot of people have been surprised by the book and because some people, I think, just thought it would be like an, epi- an edition of Loaded. Hmm. And uh, But, you know, I'd be, I spent more time on The Enemy than I did on Loaded. Is that right? Um, and so I think it was... It was important to explain why I was like I was on the NME. You know, I was I was travelling fast. I was ambitious. I was unhappy with where I was when I was leaving Leeds, and I just wanted something better and different. And so, in the book, I kind of give some background as to what my personal situation was, and it's really 
I think putting the, the the more personal things in, like you know what it was like growing up with somebody who was who was ill, very badly ill on and off, which ultimately led to their death, mm. and then also later coming out of my early thirties, you know, when I had to stop drinking and taking drugs. Yeah, writing about that period was important to me because it was just you know exploring and explaining the consequence of the behaviour that I'd that I'd lived throughout my twenties. Um. So that those things surprised people, and and I think that also has been having that balanced up with the kind of the hijinks of loaded and 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 all the interesting musicians that I hung out with made it has made it a fuller book, mm. and that's what the reviewers and the interviewers and also the publishers felt. I, I struggled at times to think that people would want to hear what it was like being on the road with you two or the Happy Mondays. And then be reading about, you know, my mum, you know, my mum's death and things like that. So, um, but, you know, the response has been really phenomenal. You know, I've had a really, a really good response from readers. Obviously, you can speak to people all the time now through Twitter and Instagram and so on. Yeah. And I've had a lot of private letters and messages, you know, I say letters, you know, private messages on, on social media platforms of people opening up about challenges that they've had in their family growing up. Um, so that's been touching. I didn't expect that at all. I was hoping that maybe the writing about the drug recovery might help a few people, but I hadn't anticipated sharing the sort of family difficulties would, would kind of strike a chord with other people. I mean, but like you say in the book yourself, you, you're, you're basically sort of, running yourself ragged with the with the writing side of things and that and that thing you've always wished to do and this yeah. is the backdrop that you're this is the background to what you're not talking about so how people yeah, are finding when, when i was at the enemy i was pretty punchy you know i kind of drank a lot i didn't ever relax really i suppose um i didn't really know how to go on holiday until i was in my early 30s you know? <laughs> When I was on the enemy, my idea of a holiday was just going to New York and LA and hanging around like I was on a tour with a band. Well, I must admit, I mean, from a journalist's point of view, it's it's really impressive to read. Like, and I went there on my own dime, and I went there on my own dime. You know, you went you went looking for the story as opposed to just the the, the normal kind of junket thing, which obviously would have been common as well. But the like, yeah, the- but, yeah that's. But I think I was very driven, you know, because in nineteen eighty three, eighty four in Leeds when I was leaving school there genuinely wasn't anything going on I mean it, it's hard to explain it to the to the kind of internet generation no Google no WhatsApp no Spotify no you know YouTube nothing no eBay no way to interact with other people other than meeting them in the pub or meeting them you know at gigs or in record shops so you kind of now people are driven together by by the opportunity to communicate socially but in those days you used to I mean I had mates that I just met hanging around in Jumbo Records yeah 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 or yeah. people that I would see at gigs I used to see a lot of the students that would be at the same gigs where I was selling my fanzine but a lot of my friends at school who I played football with um, or went to gigs with as I got older they they were less interested in going to gigs and um, so I was pretty much I was on my own quite a lot, you know, and then I'd kind of like, I'd, you know, I joined this network of underground fanzine writers, which spread from, um, you know, Greenock, west of Glasgow to um, 
where else? Hull, Manchester, Liverpool, London. Uh, and so I just found myself heading off to answer your question. I, at that age of 18 and 19, I was just hitchhiking out of Leeds and I'd go to the Unity Club in Hull or mm. I got the big I got a big Flames Wild Club in Manchester to see the bands out on and sell my fanzines. So the idea of just heading off to go and find the Beastie Boys in Switzerland when everybody wanted to find out about them was just exactly the same to me as seeing the Redskins were playing in Nottingham and going and, hit, and going and hitchhiking there and making sure I got there in time, you know, for the sound checks that had put me on the guest list. Um, I mean, even phones in those days. If you rang somebody and they weren't in, that was it. I posted on on Facebook that I was reading your book and how much I was enjoying it, and and a friend of mine wrote, and I, and I think you might like this as a response. He said, he said back when he was a mouthy teenage fanzine editor running Attack on Bezag, I came very close to giving him a smack in the mouth. Can't even remember why now, but I suspect that probably happened to him a lot back then. He did have a skill for irking people. And then he said, fair play to him, though. He got to live the dream. I was pretty obnoxious. <laughs> but no, that's, I mean, that's, that's part of this. I mean, I said to him, I said, I said, I think he's pretty much aware of what he was like then in the, from the book. No, but I talk about that in the book, you know, I was... I was just, I'm very honest about my own shortcomings. I was really pushy and mouthy. And, but you know what? If I hadn't sold the fanzines, I wouldn't have eaten. I was on 14 quid a week on the dole. This was before I started writing for sounds. When I just had my fanzines, between leaving school and, and starting to write for sounds, like 18 months or two years later, yeah. I mean, I literally, like, it was skin. It wasn't like I didn't have rich parents. Mm. I didn't have a, a sort of a an inheritance, or you know. Sometimes I meet these people in London, and they talk about well, they haven't got any money, and it's like next thing you know, they're putting a zinc roof on the house. You know. Kind of, <laughs> so I think, uh, yeah, I was really, I was obnoxious. I was full of myself, and I was obnoxious, and I was pushy. But also, that's what I was drawn to the enemy that I realised reading the enemy that there were a lot of people that were like that in there mm. and and so that really became the kind of the, the the spotlight I was aiming for you know that that not the spotlight you know the, the lighthouse of, yeah 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 you know the beam that was drawing me in and um, and so once I got to enemy where you could be like that and be celebrated for it coupled with the fact that I was good at spotting new bands um, and then I was also good at spotting other good new writers. It meant that I was in a place where I could progress and start to get a life, you know? No, and, and to be honest with you, not to get too sort of dewy-eyed and, and romantic about it, but it is it is refreshing to read a sort of working-class success story in the media. You know, you, there aren't there aren't loads of them, you know, and it's it's great to see. Yeah. Someone posh will play me in the film. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I was going to ask you that question. I mean, Caitlin Moran's book, you know, How to Build a Girl, got made into a film, and we're obviously a film podcast. Yeah, Is, we've had it, some authors already, you know. Some really? TV, oh, exciting. So TV series and films and things like that. So we're talking, you know, we've got a few different people that have approached us about that. Nice one. Well, look, a question I ask a lot of documentarians about when they make a documentary is about perception versus what the reality was when they've made them what they perceive to be going into the film and then what happens when they've made the film now when you set about writing a book about yourself you, had, yeah. you, you might have had a perception about how that story might have pan out but what do you think you learned about yourself 
that you wouldn't have perceived at the start of the writing of the book? Well, that's a good question, Stuart, because there were two or three times when I realised, when I literally asked myself, why am I writing this? One time I actually wrote down, you might, and there were things that are, writing it out, I got some perspective. So I was writing about having an eating disorder, and I remember thinking, nobody cares about this. No one will care about having, I mean, it wasn't, in those days, in the late 60s and early 70s, nobody said, oh, you've got an eating disorder. Mm. You need to go to to some sort of therapist and, and deal with it. Uh, or some dietitian or something. But what I realised was that because I didn't eat properly throughout my childhood, I mainly just lived off sweets and white bread and crisps and chips. Um, I, I was terrified of going in for the school lunches early when I first went to school. I just, I wouldn't even eat the puddings, you know. I was just terrified of eating. But I, when I was writing it, I realised that actually that's probably the reason why I later became a really excessive drinker and and and, and and drug user because I didn't have any understanding of structure and balance, you know, about when and why. So that was one element. Okay. And then and then the other thing when I was writing about when we went on these, we used to have this, I went to a middle school, I think some cities in England sort of copied yeah, yeah. the American way to break up the gap between primary school and secondary school. And we had a, te- a head teacher at, at middle school and she was into folk dancing and she used to train all the kids. So the girls would do Irish dancing and Scottish dancing and she'd have the boys doing Morris dancing and sword dancing. And she used to train us up and then take us on a coach to Germany. Um, so I was writing about that just because it was... And then I realised, I said, what is the point of writing about this? And I realised that that's why I have itchy feet now to this day. You know, I, I think that, you know, that by the time I was 12, I'd been abroad on a coach, basically on tour four times. <laughs> yeah. And so the idea of getting in a van with a band and going to a gig and a performance, that was that was already in there from when I, you know, when, when I saw those pictures of the two-tone tours or the Sex Pistols and the Clash on, on buses, when they were trying to, you know, replicate the old 60s, kind of like multiple band lineup. Mm. Um, just looked like the school trips we went on on those tours. And then later when I was good at football, we went, the school team went to to uh, Belgium to play some teams in on some tournaments there. Again, on coaches. And I think those coach trips were probably in an early life were what set me up to be so keen to head off on the road rather than just doing what most people did, which was get the single, get the album, watch the band when they come through town. Mm. I wanted to go with the bands. I wanted to travel with them and get get away from where I was in Leeds and, and go to different places, but mainly because the high of, of the, the music was just so exhilarating, the bands that I loved. And um, so they were a couple of things that when I was writing them, I was thinking, I was learning things I was realising things about my life because I just, I had to ask myself, why am I putting this in? Surely somebody will just want to know what it was like working at, you know, um, meeting Jack Nicholson when I, you know, or, or hanging around with, you know, Paul Weller or stuff like that. Yeah. Will they really give a fuck about this? But also I liked writing about my childhood. I wrote, I, I knew that when I wrote my football book, which did pretty well, above head height about playing football I, I knew that people really liked the stuff that I'd written about 
playing football in the streets in Headingley. Um, and lots of people, like an awful lot of people, wrote to me on Twitter talking about identification. Um, and so I was, I wanted to revisit some of that. I like writing about it. You know, I, had a, I basically had a, largely, apart from some issues, I had a, like, an enjoyable childhood. And then suddenly when I was 15, 16, you know, my mum was ill, unemployment was looming, they just caught the Yorkshire Ripper, and, and that's where I lived, where some of his attacks took place. It was really, it was really weird reading that that chapter because I was, I, I'd not, I'll not kid you, I was going, is he going to mention the Yorkshire Ripper? And it was on because like I could, I knew what the ta- the years were from what you dated it, and then suddenly you kind of it comes into the story, and I didn't yeah, wonder if you were going to go into that. I mean, anybody who was whatever age they were in Leeds growing up in that time, and, and maybe you know Bradford, and he, he struck in Preston as well, maybe Sheffield but particularly Leeds, um, it was terrifying. It was like, it made you paranoid and worried and mm. worried for your family, for your mum, your sisters or whoever, you know, people particularly who had adult, you know, women in the family. And um, it, it was a really, I wrote a long piece about it for a little independent crime magazine. And that's what some of that in the book came out of that bigger piece. Yeah. Because... Um, it definitely affected my mum's sort of mental well-being, and I mean, it was just so close. You of know, course, I mean, yeah, it, yeah. When you were talking about on your like the street, like streets and neighbouring streets, that is close. Yeah, but I mean, he, he killed, he attacked a woman that was staying at my girlfriend's house. Jeez, yeah. You know, and and he kind of he killed. I think the first woman he killed, he left the he left her on the playing field where I used to play table tennis. You know, me and my mate. I mean, they, they were different times. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Me and my mate would be like, you know. 10 years old, 11 years old, walking home from one side of Leeds from, from kind of like Hare Hills or Chapel Town all the way back to Headingley, you know. And I mean, the kids, I don't think kids would do that nowadays, have that sort of journey on, on Shepherded. But um, so obviously, I'm not making some sort of claim to be close to it than, you know, than anyone else who was a citizen of, of, the, of, 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 of Leeds at the time. But it was a really dark thing. So when you've got, when you kind of suddenly, when you're mid in your mid teens, just things started getting a lot darker. My mum was ill and in and out of hospital. The Ripper was leaving corpses around. Nobody knew who he was. Unemployment was looming. You know, I was one of those kids who was in the CND who thought. I was going to say Cold War as well. You know, it was it was looming, wasn't it? It was dark. It was a dark time, and Mm. I think. And I suppose the other thing that I realised when I was writing the book was, in a way, Loaded was recapturing that, where that childhood ended, perhaps a bit prematurely. And um, so that on the first part, in the first chapter, you know, the very introduction, it says, this is a book about two childhoods. Because Loaded was was like a childhood. It was just fantastic. It was, it was sometimes childish. It was often childlike. Yeah. And it was just a, a gang of young guys largely having a fucking great time. And, you know, when you were a kid, your mates would knock on your door and saying you're coming to play out, you know, go on your bikes or play football or make swings in the woods or whatever, build dens. That's basically what we did every day and got paid for it, you know, and, and it was a success. You know, people enjoyed... I'll never... I mean, the one thing, the one article that never never loses my mind is the fact you got into Milan into a jet plane, into jet fighter planes. Well, actually, that was... Um, it was Sampdoria. Sampdoria, we, um, sorry. We just found those. There was a. There were two. There was 
there were two Italian magazines. One was called King, and I can't remember what the other one was. And they were really unusual magazines because they were very mainstream magazines. But they'd also occasionally have like topless women in it, or you know, like you know, those Italian fashion shoots would be so hot, mm. you know. And at that time, you know, they didn't have Des Lynam, they'd have some beautiful model presenting <laughs> Syria our football, so it was you know, much more. Um, and, and we just saw the pictures in there. I, I found this magazine, and then in, in it was a there was a really good magazine shop in Old Compton Street, and you could go in there, and they had magazines from all over the world, and um. So we found these magazines and there were just these pictures in there of Rude Hullet and David Platt and Roberto Mancini, Lombardo. Sven Goran Eriksson was the manager and uh, they looked great. And Tim, who was my assistant editor, he got on the phone and found the guy who'd organised it and did an interview with him. And they were, it was for a charity calendar. Oh, wow. Every day they did a fancy charity calendar and some posters to raise money for a charity that this guy around a clothes shop. So it was really good though, because it showed that the very first loaded, it showed that we were going to do different things. Mm. You know, we had a few real points of difference in that first issue that other magazines didn't have. So the readers, when they found it, suddenly went, Oh, this is, I like this. This is me. And I've never seen this stuff before. Yeah. Cause my, my, in fact, my love affair with magazines began with, do you remember LM magazine? No, it was kind of music and politics. I don't remember it. And I used to get that, and that was kind of... And then it wasn't till... Because then Loaded comes along, and suddenly music, film, football, <laughs> as being like, this is what we do. And it was like, thank God, somebody's finally acknowledged that we do like it, and it's not a bad thing. Well, that was why it was a success, because it, it, it was how guys were. Hmm. The magazines that had come before it were very... I mean, if I picked up a GQ, which I never did... But I remember seeing one had like Michael Heseltine on the cover and like the fashion shoot and I mean all all things that later kind of became coolly aspirational but you know like it would be some country squire in his barber wellies and mm. in his barber coat and his hunter wellies and his shotgun and some a brace of pheasants over the over the Range Rover you know that that um, it was just a different world you know I was more like to see somebody wearing a donkey jacket than a than a kind of a squire's outfit, you know. So there was a very open goal, really, I felt, when they offered me the chance to create the magazine, was if I mix music and football, which, funnily enough, the publishers who, who published it, that's what they had. They had Loaded. Before Loaded, they had Shoot magazine, they had 90 Minutes magazine, and they had Enemy and Melody Maker and Vox. So it wasn't that far of a stretch to mix the two things, and I used the... You know, for all the loaded photo content came from shoot. You know, I used to go up into their photo library. Oh, okay. and it was it was absolutely fascinating. I mean, I was I knew the enemy photo library inside out. Um, but if the, the I would be finding photo photos in the shoot library that had never been used, I found an amazing one of George Best um, running in the rain playing for Northern Ireland, which we did as a full page three three panel gatefold poster. Um, to pull out of Loaded. It was brilliant. And you knew if it had ever been used because on the back there would be lines with numbers on them which would be messages to the printers telling them what size they wanted the picture or it might yeah. be a, there might be a crop around it. There might be pieces of paper stuck on the front to illustrate what they wanted cropping out. 
and yeah so a, so a lot of footballing nostalgia and loaded for the 70s and, and 80s came from the shoot archive um, it, like I said it just felt like an open landscape you know I knew there was, there was, we were never short of things to write about in loaded no, and it's like, and it's like you said before about there being no internet and all that kind of thing. It's like magazines, certainly from a consumer point of view, where I was looking at it from, were like this curated landscape of what's going on. So they're more interesting and more diverse the offerings were, but the more you could relate to them at the same time, because yeah. they seemed connected, was what was the fun part of finding a magazine like Loaded. But also, I think if you think about what we're going to come on to talk about. Football was prevalent by 1994 when Logan yeah, yeah, came yeah. out. I mean, I, I came up with the idea in 92 and it took about 18 months to get the publishers to agree to launch it. And But but by then, football was everywhere. You could watch football regularly on Sky. And, yeah, Italia 90 had happened, hadn't it? Yeah, but it was... I mean, people talk about Italia 90 because England had a good tournament. The first time they had a good tournament, really. Well, I mean, Lineker did well in 86, but it was the first time we'd got to semi-final since mm. 66 I think so yeah, yeah. it was first first really relatively successful tournament in 20 years and but Sky putting football on television changed everything because suddenly it, it wasn't just on for an hour every now and then there were two or three shows a week and but what wasn't given the same prominence was films there were no Sky movies at that point. Yeah, there was yeah, no, yeah. So you had to get to, to get cult films. You had to find either a video shop that had, had somebody who was selecting good old films or the first videos that I owned was when I was on the NME. When I started earning a bit of cash, there was a shop at the bottom of Tottenham Court Road just where it meets uh, Oxford, uh, Oxford Street, which oh, was yeah. where the NME offices were very close to. Right by centre point. Yeah, it's a diagonally opposite centre point heading north. There was a little, there was a pub called the Blue Posts and there was this little array of quite shabby looking shops. Uh, I think there's like a Marks and Spencers or something there now. They rebuilt it and they, they would sell things like, just before where all of the, um, this Tom Court Road is where you used to go to get your Walkmans to interview bands and people would get the sound system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and there was this little, little <coughs> of, of uh, shoddy shops they sold things like second-hand instruments and there was one there was a video shop there and it was it was such a fucking great shop whoever chose the films so when I got my first wages from the NME I went and bought Electric Glide in Blue Mean Streets Taxi Driver With Nail um, The Eagle Has Landed I remember buying about five or six films and they were my videos, Animal House. So, so the films I'm going to talk about were you today. I was going to say, let's let's not leave that in the locker room. I'm going to introduce the format now. So we're doing, we're, do, we're, we're going to do three films that impacted everything in your adult life. Three films yeah. that James has already given me. And we're going to talk for five minutes against the clock for each one. So can you hear this okay at your end when it goes off? Can you hear that? Yes. Starting with the first one, we've got 1978 National Lampoon's Animal House. Obviously, it's the title of your book. So, what, where, where did you first see that, and why, why is that important to you in terms of impacts on your adult life? 
I must have even seen that at the cinema, which would be the lounge in Headingley or the Cottage Road cinema in Headingley, which is the oldest cinema in Leeds, mm-hmm. or possibly the Hyde Park cinema, which is often used in, in um, period dramas. But where I mainly, mainly what, remember watching it is, I think my mates had a video of it. We had two films, Quadrophenia and Animal House, that would always be shown at teenage parties. Okay. So the year that film came out, I was 13. Mm-hmm. And so you can have a year into secondary school, old, old teachers, big old building, people, you know, just it's kind of weird, just at the same time as you're starting to kind of change and, and, and explore things in life, you're getting told you've got to work harder and you've got to stop playing around and all, all the things that are great about being a kid. At the same time as you start to go through puberty and kind of be, I mean, you know, you kind of, you start giving all these, what felt like draconian measures. You're being warned, aren't you? Adulthood's just around the corner. <laughs> yeah, and then suddenly I saw this film about these Americans and what? Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Funny enough, because I grew up in the student area of Leeds, I never associated the students that would piss in our garden or <laughs> nick milk or leave, a, you know, nick your bikes or whatever, with or, or just would kind of ruin the pub when I was a bit older. I never associated them with the, the students that were in Animal House. It was just an explosion of fun and stupidity. It was very well written. It was very funny. There were so many good scenes in it. Obviously, Belushi steals the whole film. It's, yeah. it's, his, it's his film, you know, one of only two good films he really made. And so that, I just thought it, it looked great. I loved it. I loved the character. I love the fact that in the face of discipline, they, instead of knuckling under, they just got worse. <laughs> um, and I love the fact that they won. I love the fact that the students, you know, the, the Delta Taukai house beat the system. <laughs> And uh, and it and it was so like I say it was I guess it was like a fantasy really of what life possibly could be like, but that film stayed with me throughout my teenage years. And then when I could buy videos, I bought a video cop, you know, I bought a videotape of it, 
and it was totally in my mind when I was creating Loaded, more than more than anything else. The toga party, the drinking, the road trip, um, you know, just the, the scene when they says you guys have been on double secret probation. You know? <laughs> I was often on double secret probation. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm think I'm still banned from five live, you know, <laughs> been banned from five live twice. And, um, is it, is yeah. it, is it a sense though? You know, obviously as a kid, you're only, you're only getting those adult influences. Suddenly you're seeing a film that offers you this other adult influence where they're kind of young adults, obviously not, not the, not the ones dishing out Jacronian things, but like that whole sense of fraternity where you, where that fraternity could be your rebellion really. Well, it was just, it was a film about freedom, really. It was a film about the freedom and, 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 and about possibility. And it was very funny. You know, for a 13-year-old kid, there's a couple of sexy bits in it. You know, mm. there's, um, I just thought it was, I thought they looked like they had the best life. And, and, that, and I'm glad Loaded was a success, you know, because I think, you know, you go through periods of of fun and then you do move on and you do change. But the three years that I spent live at Loaded, as well as the, less so the year and a half we were developing it, that was kind of more about thoughts and putting ideas down on paper. But um, when we were actually living the life, it was often, you know, I used to think, you know, I'd captured the dream that I've had when I was 13. <laughs> So, so in that sense, was it never was it never in doubt that Animal House would be the name of the book? Well, yeah, near the end. I mean, I, I didn't name it Animal House after the film. I named it because it was a film that I liked in the same way as, yeah, it was a film that I really liked. But I also thought, in all honesty, that film is very close to what it was like running Loaded. You know, being from the age, you know, I was like... I was about 27 when I came up with the idea, 29 when it came out, so probably slightly retarded. You know, not I don't mean retarded in a, I don't mean that in a negative way, slightly immature, you know, yeah, slightly yeah, yeah, less. Yeah. You know, at the same time, other people were thinking about getting married. I was thinking about, like, getting paid to test crisps and vodka <laughs> to, uh, in toga parties. And um, I'm actually doing a, I'm doing a talk in a brewery on the 15th of December. I have my ticket. Brilliant, thanks. It'd be good to see you. But I thought I might do it in a toga costume. <laughs> no, I think I will. I'm going to do that. I okay, well, you, you've just recorded it. You've just recorded it on the podcast. You're going to do it. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to put on a crown of thorns like Belushi's got in that, that thing. You know, I love that. I mean, the opening line in the book is the quote from, was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? <laughs> it was just a very funny film. It had a great sense of fun and energy about it. And um, so that's why. Well, look, your second choice. Yeah. Five minutes of of, of long gone now. Okay. Um, uh, can I say one more thing? Yeah, go on, go on. The music in Animal House is brilliant as well. What's the standout track for you? Well, just throughout all of it, you know. I guess, I guess, you know, all of it. It's all that old soul, all those old soul songs. Then the Kingsman, Louis Louis, as well. You know. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Well, look, moving into uh, much darker territory than Animal House, uh, 1976's Paul Schrader written, Martin Scorsese directed, one of my favourite films, if I'm honest with you, Taxi Driver. Where, where does that fit in terms of your 
your your formative years and how it impacted on you? Well, I wouldn't have seen taxi driver until I was older. Um, apart from anything else, even when I was in my early twenties, I looked about thirteen. You know, I just <laughs> had a suede head and a t-shirt and a pair of shorts. And, An image um, you keep repeating is about you keep repeating in the book, which is quite funny. Whenever you turn up at places, you're basically you're this teenager adult. Yeah, people thought I was a kid. You know, that's part of. I mean, it helped really because precocious. You know, but um, the first time I can, I mean, the first time I saw a picture of Travis Bickle was in the NME, mm. and the NME, you know, was in, in the mid eighties, late early. I guess the early eighties. The NME had a lot of strong film content so you'd see things like articles about a razor head and taxi driver or mad max and they'd use the imagery really big but of course it was very difficult to see those films if you were kind of 12 13 14 15 mm. um because one the video world hadn't really exploded at that point and two you know the films would just come through for a week and they'd be gone you know and, and if yeah. you weren't old enough to see them it was difficult to get in but the, one of the first times I remember hearing anything about tax driver was when I had a mohawk myself okay after I left school the first thing I did was get a, get a mohawk it was great how, 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 how high a mohawk did you go or did you just have the, the, the central thing like Travis no I, just, I didn't have a it wasn't soaked up yeah it was like strummers okay it was, okay it was shaved down the sides and across the top and I did it when I was going on the Oxford Road show with Billy Bragg. He was hosting it and he asked me to go on and talk about my fanzine. So I would have been about 18 or something. And um, this kid kept, this guy came up to me whilst I was selling my fanzine outside a clash gig in Leeds. And um, this guy came and mentioned Travis Bickle and Taxi Driver. And then when I start, I guess... I don't honestly know when I first saw it. It could have been at a cinema in London. You know, it, I don't think it would have been at the pictures in Leeds. I think, and then getting the video, and it was just a film that I watched over and over and over again. Mm. When you, you know, that era before digital TV, you would have tapes, you know, in the same way as you would have albums and listen to them again and again. So I, I thought the kind of, I just thought it was a brilliantly filmed and a redemption and that Travis Brickle goes through the love. You know, I'd, I mean, I, I always have had friends and I've always had girlfriends as well. But London was a big old city when I first came to it, you know. Mm. And, I, and often, you know, when I'd come out of the NME, I didn't I didn't know a great deal of people. So I used to spend a fair bit of time walking around the city and looking at it. And obviously I wasn't a Vietnam vet about, about, about to go on a kill. No, but you know, I wasn't. I didn't have a personal identification, but I just loved that story, and and I and I went off and consumed everything I could find about it. You know, Schrader on Schrader, yeah, um, uh, which I think Faber published, and any any books that I could find about Martin Scorsese, um, I've got them up there on my shelf still now. I, I thought it was such a unique take on on a guy's attempting to get accepted. And it's actually, it's got an identical plot structure to The King of Comedy, mm. which I realised one Monday morning when I went into the enemy and I'd watched both of them back to back the night before and I started talking about them and was getting them confused. You know, there's basically a guy who's trying to be accepted in society or, or in showbiz as a King of Comedy. 
everybody's knocking him back. So he does something really extreme. And by doing something extreme, he becomes accepted. Um, and, um, yeah, just thought it was beautifully written. It looked amazing. And the Bernard Herrmann soundtrack was, you know, I bought that as well. So I would sometimes, you know, if Taxi Driver was on, in Soho they would have these sort of independent cinemas. And sometimes they'd just show films regardless of when they were released. So yeah, I would yeah. occasionally, I'd go and watch it if it was on. Do you ever frequent the, Sca- you, you frequent the Scala? Pardon? Do you ever frequent the Scala cinema when that was still a cinema? Yeah, I went to the Scala. Yeah, I went to Scala a few times. I saw... Um, I think I saw Gallon Drunk once in front of... They played in front of Apocalypse Now. That was pretty good. Oh, that sounds good. Um, and, yeah, I did go to the Scala a few times when it was still a cinema. I mean, me, as, as, a, as, a, as a person who... I'm developing screenplays, I'm, I've, I've sort of retrained from a journalist to to screenwriting and you look at someone like Schrader as a hero and then you go and he, wrote, he wrote Taxi Driver when he was living in a car that's what I was going to say you go what did? He, what was the secret behind like why Taxi Driver is so powerful you go he was living out of his car and, thing, and I can't replicate that I think it's because Schrader Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro and Harvey Keitel were all at a point where they were pushing pushing to be successful pushing to be to make it, but also pushing to be able to be successful and make it doing what they were good at. Mm. And it was, the just, peak, it was a peak in New Hollywood, wasn't it, as well, in the 70s, 76? Yeah, I mean, something. obviously, the Raging Bulls book, as Easy Riders Raging Bulls, yeah. has really well identified and documented that period. But as as a viewer, as somebody going to watch that film, you can sense that... Um, how desperate how desperation fuels the the perfect performances of each of them and um i mean obviously the three key characters have all been together before the director and the and, and Keitel and um and Janeiro have all been together in mean streets before that hmm. but i mean you you watch these films and they're like they're obviously very competent films but scorsese was brilliant at using the city yeah to fill up his film you know there's the there's, there's no quiet moments in Taxi Driver. The, the, the scene is is frequently, it's a busy scene. You know, what you're seeing in front of you, the set is busy. And whether that's because he's surrounded by a thousand people walking down the streets of New York, or whether it's because he's in the um, in his apartment. And the first time it slows up is after when it goes into slow-mo, after he's, when he tries to kill himself, after he's, he's shot. The, the, the pimps and, and the Johns in the brothel. You know, I haven't watched it for a while. My son studies film now, and I watched it with him. And there was a, there's a great documentary about it, you know. I mean, obviously, nowadays, there's, there's so much more information about these films, retrospectively mm. on screen and on books and, and, and retrospective articles and so on. But um, at the time, I, it was just... I think throughout that time of my mid-teens to my mid-twenties, I was just desperate to find out about things that I was really into, mm. whether, that, whether that was Hunter Thompson or Tom Wolfe, the writers, or Taxi Driver. Um, you know, the, I guess in a way, the fact that it wasn't easy to get information meant you were keener in the search. I mean, I think so. I can't imagine it's, that it's not. I mean, you can be now. You could be rockabilly today. You can be reggae tomorrow. You can be goth the day after that, and it doesn't. You know, it doesn't require much effort. Whereas, if you tie your colours to any mast, that's that's you. So you then you end up 
diving into it for as much as you can. Well, a good example is, you know, two nights ago I watched Copland, directed by James Mangold, mm. uh, starring Harvey Keitel and De Niro. They're both on this, you know, in that as well. And, um, you know, before the film had even in- finished, I was reading an interview where, with Mangold where he was talking about it in depth. Yeah. That was because the film was going on, you know. No, I, hate myself, I hate myself when I do that. Yeah, it was, but it was just, uh, it was exact opposite back then. And, and so just to come back round again, you know, the NME was one of the few places where you could open it up on a Wednesday and there might be a dirty, great big full page photograph of, of Travis Bickle or, um, you know, I remember seeing big pictures of Mad Max when that came out and they, the enemy made films look exciting, even though obviously it was a music paper. They used the graphics of those films to make the magazine look good. Absolutely. And that, that was something that I took into loaded. I knew that I wanted to have loads and loads of pictures of the films that I loved, like Get Carter and The Italian Job and With Nail and, and so on. I, knew, I, I understood that... I knew that the pictures existed of films. I knew that, that the, the, the world of cinema would make the magazine look good yeah. you know so we so we deliberately often used you know stills from films and later on the next film we're going to talk about when I had a movie mag called Hot Dog because it was proving hard or expensive to get shots that weren't the same old press shots of Whipnail I actually bought an actual copy of the film well, let's 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 start there. So let's talk about with, with the, the third choice is with Nell and I from nineteen eighty seven. Uh, rec- yeah. uh, funny enough, I had um, Alistair Owen who wrote um, "Smoking in Bed," conversations with Bruce Robinson. I, he's just done the same thing you're doing now. The three films, uh, I did it with him last week. Uh, but let's talk about what uh, "With Nell and I" means for you. I enjoyed that book. I thought it was a. I thought it was a great book. I only read that this year. Okay. I don't know. I think it'd been out a while, but I saw it and I bought that. I thought it was really good. But yeah, so when I had Hot Dog, I actually basically there were about two or three shots in existence from Whipnail that we used as press shots. And when I had Hot Dog, we found a copy for sale and bought it and cut it up. <laughs> it was a really tatty, rough copy from Belgium or somewhere, and it was. Uh, we got it on early eBay, and 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 we. It meant that in Hot Dog we had we had shots that other people had never had. Seriously, they were literally, they literally we just. I mean, it was about fifty quid or something. <laughs> but um, but going back to nineteen eighty seven when Withnail came out, I just joined the enemy, and I did see that at the cinema. Mm. I saw it at cinema, I think in in um, in Soho. And I had a mate on the enemy, Adrian Tierney Jones, and he actually looked like with Nail. I remember being at a house party at the time <laughs> when it was on release. And he had his hair slicked back and a long coat. And, you know, he didn't look like it because he wanted to look like Richard E. Grant's character. Just what Adrian looked like. He was a sub on the enemy. I can remember fighting our way up the stairs to get to the bit where the drink was in the kitchen and some guy going, with Nail! <laughs> <laughs> that, that struck a chord straight away again because it, it looked so great and it was so well acted and so well written and it was a brilliant film about the loneliness of, of, of being a young man and obviously they have their, their you know their friendship but I'm talking about at the end and I watched with now the, the films that I used to watch an awful lot between the enemy and loaded were 
performance and with nail okay they're the two films that i used to have on 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 video and i'd go home drunk and put them on or if anyone was round, you know i've had a girl around or something they'd put that on in the background or if i'd mates round and we were just talking whatever i'd just turn those two on and so with nail was always rolling in my, in my living room and so when loaded came out and i knew i wanted to have cult film content in it i wrote a piece called with nail you terrible cult and <laughs> no one had ever written that piece it was the first time anyone had said okay it's seven years since this film came out and it's become much bigger now as a video uh, film where people watch it and quote it to each other it become a much bigger cult mm. than it had been on on release and and that really struck a chord. And I know somebody, um, you know, when I got in touch with Bruce, Dick, uh, Bruce to in- Bruce Robinson to interview him, he was really appreciative, you know, that, that there was a generation that loved the film because it, you know, he's never happy, Bruce. No, no, and it, no. And, and and he wasn't happy with the way it, it was produced in the end and the way that they cut it and, um, you know, there was a falling out of handmade and. And then, you know, he probably wished in Britain more people had seen it. I think quite a lot of people saw it in the States. Um, so it was really great to be able to interview him. And and we ran that piece. And, and um, so consequently, because of that piece, you know, I was interviewed for the making of documentary and things like that, just to talk about from the viewer's experience. Yeah. But the Midnail drinking game already existed at that point. You know, when I when I was talking about it, one of the guys in the office said, "Oh, my mates play a drinking game," and that, that was something that already existed. So we put that in as well. Um, I just think, you know, it's a. I kind of felt before Loaded came out. I think if Loaded hadn't happened, I would have identified how Withnail felt at the end. You know, like he had a talent that wasn't given an opportunity to find its it's destiny or you know he didn't have a a way to use his talents and I asked Bruce once later on he he had a screening at the South Bank and he did it and he did a big he did a Q&A and I said I didn't feel like the end was the right ending I didn't ask him this when I interviewed him right and I said was that really the end and he said no you're right he said in the script he goes back to the house and he takes the shotgun and the really expensive bottle of wine that he's stolen from Monty's house. Yeah. And he fills the uh, the both barrels up with wine and he, and he shoots himself. <gasps> really? Not for a drink. He kills himself. Oh, no, of course. No, I figured that's what you meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah obviously, if you poured wine down a shotgun, I don't imagine the shot would work. But, um, and that's, that's, that was his original ending. Wow. I never knew that. So I think... Yeah, and then over the years I've been to see Bruce, you know. I, Can I ask you, you know, watch, watching the film in 1987, when yeah. it's very much the 80s, and obviously this is a period piece, what was your, what do you remember your relationship being to the 60s? You know, like, because obviously nostalgia is, was still like, a new thing in pop culture, really. In 1987, we're getting, we're just about to hit Acid House, aren't we, in house music? So that's kind of the last real new cycle of music, isn't it? Yeah, well, because it was a film, yeah, um, it didn't matter because, I mean, loads of films that I loved were from different periods, you know, yeah. um, Quadrophenia, Butch and Sundance, you know, um, Apocalypse Now. Yeah. The idea of moving back in time in, 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 in films 
was different to the idea of of moving back in time in music. You know, there's there's a sense in music that you always need to be on the new thing. Hmm. And you're right. At that time, there wasn't, you know, there was an emergence of a new generation of music um, in sort of bands, and then also the emergence of sort of DJ culture and house music and the Balearic scene. Hmm. Um, so it just felt it felt quite natural, you know. I mean, like another film that I love was Once Upon a um, Not a Fistful of Dynamite. Okay. You know, and, and that you know that was. That was fun. But like like Fistful of Dynamite and like Taxi Driver, with Nail has a beautifully haunting soundtrack. And it was interesting finding out that that was by David Dundas, who did have the big hit, My Blue Jeans On. I've got my blue jeans on. Yeah, yeah, I know the tune. <laughs> yes, that was David Dundas. And then also, I don't know if I mentioned this in my piece, but I think Bruce told me when I interviewed him that David Dundas had written the da 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 da, like the little um, the music that went with the logo for uh, the Ident music for Channel Four. Right. And he'd retained the rights, so consequently he was getting a broadcasting royalty, something like forty times a day. Jesus he was getting Christ. more. He was getting more royalty checks than anyone else. Lord David Dundas, and I think. Um, there was a lot going on, as there was in Taxi Driver, there was a lot going on in With Nail. You know, there was the look, there was the sense of desperation. You can feel the keenness. There's no slack in those films. No, no, no. But 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 equally, they do they do have they do both give you time to breathe. You know, you get you you get to feel the mood as well as the action, don't you? You kind of it's not just about the freneticness, but you you don't feel like it stood still ever, do you? No, never. And I think. You know, sometimes you watch a film and you... Th- what I find when I watch films now, I become very critical of the editing. Right. And the, I, mean, I don't know how to edit a film, but I know how to edit an article and I know, and I know how to edit, you know, a magazine and things. But um, I think you just see periods of film and you think, fucking call this out. You know, it's, it's not serving a purpose. And I think... I was glad when my book came out that people started saying similar comments to me that it was fast and that you never felt like you wanted to put it down or... You know, it, you kind of just speeds you through. People were saying to me, I've read it in a, in two days, a weekend or a three nights or whatever. And I was like, part of me was frustrated with that because it took six years to write. <laughs> <laughs> but and, and, I, and I think, you know, if, if you look at films, if you look at your favourite films, there's probably not much wasted time on screen. You know, like I said, I watched, I watched King of Comedy the other day and it was, um, just came across it on that Rakuten thing that you get with your Samsung telly mm. and um, my girlfriend had never seen it so we started watching that about to, it was a few, couple of minutes in when she joined and um, it's just it's so tight you know every scene in those films moves you on mm. you know and I think that, that that was what was good about with Nail you know obviously it's when they go off to, to Crow Crag that gives them somewhere to physically go and, and to move it to a different location uh, which is what probably separates it from being like the Lightly Lads or something, where they're just stuck in one place. Um, but yeah, just beautifully written, so well shot, great colours, great soundtrack. Well, um, look, we're uh, we're we're out of time, James. We've uh, we've uh, we've way gone past our five minutes of film, but it was great. It's been great to talk about them. Not not no time wasted in that on that matter. Uh, just going to remind people so your three films that impacted everything in your adult life 
National Lampoon's Animal House, Taxi Driver, with Nail and I. Animal House, your memoir that's out now. Who, who's, who's the publisher? It's by Quirkus, but I'll, I'll give you the order of cheapness to get it. Go on. <laughs> Cheapest is Audible, which is about, I think, seven quid and has been hugely popular. It's it's uh, it's so well over a thousand copies. Are you reading I read it? it? I read it myself and I keep breaking down in laughter <laughs> how stupid some of the things we did at Loaded were. And that, unintentionally, that's become a, a bit of a selling point. So that's the cheapest. And then Kindle. Yeah. Is doing well, and then you can get it from Amazon. Obviously, they they'll get it to you the next day, and they will deliver it. And then all the independent bookshops, a lot of them have it. Uh, and then you can buy it Waterstones online, or if you want a signed copy and a dedicated copy, you can just follow me on social media at James James Brown. I've sold about four hundred. Oh well, I've sold over four hundred. There was a delay in Waterstones sending them out and rough trade. So people, I just said, oh, look, cancel it and send it to me. I'll just, I'll dedicate and sign one. And then I just had hundreds of people asking for them. So that's that's 25 quid, but you get, you know. Well, look, it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving your time on the Britflix podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's a pleasure. I love talking about films and I'm looking forward to making one. I hope you do. Um, there's plenty there's plenty of raw, raw material to deal with yeah. <laughs> thank you Stuart my it's pleasure been a great podcast Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.